Thank you, Lord. Amen. Please do be seated. Well, if you've uh, been journeying with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that we have begun a new teaching series where we're joining Jesus as he takes the journey towards Jerusalem on the road towards Easter, towards death, towards resurrection. And we're picking out a few conversations that Jesus had with different people along the way. We're stopping off to ponder some of the events that happened in Jesus' life. Now, probably what's already struck you after just two weeks of this series is that Jesus sets the bar incredibly high for those of us who would choose to be his disciples. Yes, we want to say together, don't we, that Jesus provides for our salvation free of charge at his expense. We want to say together, surely, that Jesus delights in enabling sinners like me, maybe even you, to be in relationship with our Heavenly Father. He's made a way for us. We want to say together that Jesus' love is abundant, that his love is lavish. Yes, it absolutely is. But here's the thing. Jesus loves us too much to simply rescue us, to pull us out of the pit and out of the mud, and then to just leave us in the broken state in which he found us. Jesus delights in the transformation process. Well, if you've been a Christian, a disciple of Jesus for any period of time now, you'll know that you can bring absolutely nothing and you can do nothing to deserve an invitation into the kingdom of God. We cannot make a way in our own strength. God's provided everything that we need free of charge. And I've got to say to you, I'm so grateful for that. Otherwise, I would still be thoroughly lost if it were down to me to try and resolve some of the problems that I had to deal with to try and make my way into a relationship with God. It would be impossible. Freely I have received and freely Jesus has given. But in the Bible text we're going to dig into in just a moment in Luke chapter 14, Jesus seems to make quite an abrupt shift from everything that I've just said, and Jesus reveals to us the true cost of being a disciple. Even though salvation, relationship with Jesus is free and it's unearned, there is a cost. What we discover today is that God's grace is free, but discipleship can be costly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who was speaking from his own personal experience, I think said it well, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. And of course, if you know his story, you'll realize that his words are more than just a wishy-washy sentiment, kind of theological fluff. This was his life. This was his real experience. He said, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Cheap grace is grace without the cross. Cheap grace is grace without Jesus. In other words, you cannot experience the grace of God without discipleship, without the cross, and without Jesus. What's so interesting to me is Jesus never makes any attempt, does he, in his teaching to hide the cost of discipleship. Jesus is not a devious salesman trying to flog you a few extras for your car. Jesus is somebody who's upfront about everything that's involved. And in a sense today in our text, Jesus is saying, look, salvation, it's a great deal. It's an amazing deal, but it might just cost you. If not now, it will certainly probably cost you later. In our scripture reading today, we're going to hear those words that Jesus famously said and repeated. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. 
They must take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And as I've been preparing this week, I've been wrestling with that statement. Because this statement is radical Christianity, isn't it? That's what Jesus is calling us to. And yet sometimes, perhaps, oftentimes, I know in my own life, and maybe this is true for you, especially living here in wonderful Christchurch, I wonder how easy it is actually to subscribe to a comfortable Christianity. A comfortable Christianity. Well, if you're sitting comfortably this morning, then let me begin. Because I need to say to you this morning, our scripture reading might just leave you feeling a little less comfortable than you felt when you walked in through the doors. Luke chapter 14, uh, verses 25 to 35 is where I'll be reading. It's entitled, The Cost of Being a Disciple. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, and yes, even their own life, such person cannot be my disciple. Should we do a corporate gulp? Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay a foundation and then you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, look, this person's begun to build and they weren't able to finish. Here come some words in season. Or suppose a king, a world leader, is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and he will ask for terms of peace. He'll send a delegation and he'll ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's neither fit for the soil nor for the manure heap. It's thrown out. And Jesus finishes by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Are you still sitting comfortably? (laughs) Well, A.W. Tozer once said, may God deliver us from the easygoing, smooth, comfortable Christianity that never lets the truth get hold of us. What a statement. And our scripture reading this morning certainly promotes what Tozer was arguing for, doesn't it? Jesus is once again surrounded by a great crowd of people, and I think that's significant, having just been eating again in the home of somebody, in this case in the home of a Pharisee. And in short, Jesus is saying to those with ears to hear, if you're truly going to follow me, then you've got to consider the cost, and you have to put me above everything and anyone else. I wonder as you think back to your own moment when you came to faith in Christ, if you've made that decision, I wonder how many of us actually heard that message. How many of us, if we came to faith at the the hands of an evangelist or a church leader or a friend or a family member, heard about the cost of discipleship? Or did we only hear about the wonderful bit of the gospel, which is you're going to receive eternal life if you trust in Jesus in this moment? I know I can be guilty of this in my own ministry. I speak a lot about relationship with Jesus, how wonderful that is in this life, how amazing it's going to be for the rest of eternity. But perhaps sometimes I feel like I'm doing Jesus a a favor by downgrading the, the invitation to costly discipleship as well. 
Well, the action man Christian Bear Grylls has written a brilliant book called Climbing Everest. And he speaks about the thrill of going up to the summit, but he talks too about the mud and the sweat and the tears as he made his way through the valleys, up and down, up and down, which is what you have to do, and as he had to navigate some very difficult inclines on the way to the top. And in his book, Bear Grill says, Everest taught me at least two things. He said, firstly, it taught me humility. This mountain teaches you humility because when you climb it, you suddenly discover just how many people have died trying to reach the mountaintop. But secondly, he said, what I learned from the mountain is this, is that Everest requires you to be all in. Climbing Everest is a 100%, it's an all or nothing pursuit. And in a sense, Jesus is making the same point, isn't he, this morning in our text about the journey of faith. It takes some humility to recognize you need to receive the free gift of Jesus. How many of us have delayed making that commitment because we think, do you know what, I'm self-sufficient, I'm going to make it in my own strength. But it takes some humility to recognize we can't make it in our own strength and we need to receive this free gift. But two, Jesus today is calling for 100% commitment, isn't he? He's saying this is all or nothing. Would you give me everything? Well, suppose for a moment that I was inspired by reading Bear Grylls' book, and I suddenly had this overwhelming desire to climb Mount Mount Everest. Now, I've got to say, I don't have that desire. I think anyone who has it probably lacks common sense. But anyway, suppose I did have the desire to climb Everest. Apparently, it will cost you, as an individual, about £75,000 to do that climb. Now, when I checked my bank account a few minutes ago, I didn't have that kind of money in there. I was hopeful after the first service it might have appeared, but it didn't. (laughs) But suppose for just a moment that a wealthy business person heard about my desire to climb Mount Everest, and that wealthy person said, I'm going to pay for this expedition for you. I'm going to pay for all the expensive things, the clothing, the gear, for the transportation. I'll pay for the guides, and I'm going to pay for the training. Chris, it's going to be absolutely free for you. But here's the thing, if I accept that free offer, I've just committed myself to months of difficult training and arduous effort. If I accept the free offer, I've just committed myself to risking my life by going to the summit. It's free, but there's a cost. And the same is true, isn't it, if we've become followers of Jesus. When we receive his free offer, in a sense, we're no longer our own. We've been bought with a price. And if we're going to truly follow Jesus, then we can't do it superficially. We can't do it in a part-time kind of a way. We can't be a a couch Christian who follows Jesus, but actually as soon as things get difficult, we retreat to the comfort of the sofa. And it's this that Jesus is warning about this morning in this rather difficult text. The first thing Jesus says, well actually it's the second thing, but I'm going to start with it, is that we need to stand up. We need to stand up. The context of what's going on around Jesus in this moment, I think, is really significant. And we need to understand the context in order that we can appropriately interpret what Jesus says. At the very beginning of our text, it says, great multitudes were following Jesus. Great multitudes were following Jesus. Now, I'll tell you what, as a church leader, I would love it if great multitudes followed me. Well, as long as they were good Christians like you guys, you know, the bad ones can keep away. But... Wouldn't it be amazing? You see, the reason I think that sometimes in my more self-centered moments is that church leaders with massive megachurch congregations, they're the church leaders who get their, their books published. These are the church leaders who get invited to speak all over the world because apparently these people are successful. 
Why are they successful? Because we measure success by numbers. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't play that game, does he? Jesus is far more interested in quality than he is in quantity. These large crowds gathered around Jesus, they were not fooling him. Jesus knew that many in this multitude were following him for selfish or for superficial reasons because Jesus was the next best, most exciting thing to do. Jesus in our text is not a false recruiter. And in saying what he's saying, he's seeking in a sense to weed out some of this multitude who were following him for the wrong or for superficial reasons. Why was he doing that? Because Jesus knew that things would get tough. And when things got tough, Jesus knew that these individuals would retreat for the couches. So he turns to this great multitude and he lays out categorically before them the real demand of discipleship. He's saying, look, if you want to follow me, when the rubber really hits the road, this is what a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus, looks like. Now, what's really interesting to me is you flick through the pages of the New Testament, it's very clear that it ought to be impossible to receive the gift of salvation, to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, but then not follow him. That ought to be impossible. To believe in Jesus as Savior necessarily entails following him as Lord of your life. I hope you can understand the distinction I'm trying to make. But I guess in many ways it is possible, isn't it? And we sometimes try to do it, to to follow Jesus superficially. And Jesus would say this morning to anyone seeking to do that, would you see the cost of discipleship today? I don't want to recruit anyone under false pretenses, he's saying. So first of all, if we want to follow Jesus, then yes, we have to stand up. We have to be willing to be counted. But Jesus says before that, there's a step before we stand up. And before we stand up, we need to sit down. We need to consider the cost. So Jesus lays out two of the costs of discipleship in verses 26 to 27. And then he shares two little parables, small stories with a big message in verses 28 to 32. And those parables are making the same overall point. He's saying, look, in these parables, a person must give careful consideration to the cost of discipleship before they rashly jump in to following Jesus. But then Jesus goes on to state a third cost of discipleship in verse 33 before giving one final illustration in verses 34 to 35 about salt to underline the cost of not truly following him. And then he concludes with that warning, if you've got ears to hear, then would you hear? So the two parables. So Jesus' best advice for both the man building the tower and the king contemplating going to war is to sit down. Did you see that? It's to sit down. He tells both of them in both situations, sit down and do some careful, detailed, rational thinking to avoid becoming an impulse, ego-driven, self-promoting, decision-making individual who's in it for your own good in a moment of intense emotion. He's saying, sit down and think about the consequences for you and for somebody else before you make a rash decision. Oh, that Putin had sat down for a few minutes or even a few decades with some wise people around him and decided to approach things differently. Jesus' words are a great challenge, aren't they, for those who are on the world stage. But these words are equally challenging and they're equally timely for the contemporary church. For those of us who are followers of Jesus today, especially those of us who are following Christ living as we do in the West. 
You see, I think there's a bit of a worrying trend in contemporary church cycles. Our evangelistic methods, even our worship gatherings, and oftentimes our songs, are increasingly becoming big on emotion and little on reason. Big on emotion and little in reason. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus is very much interested in our emotions. And it's great, isn't it, that Christ can connect with them. And so often as he connects with our emotions, we take some steps further forward in our journey with him. But the Christian faith was never designed to be lived and responded to on emotion only, because Jesus is also very interested in your mind and the more rational bits of you. Jesus says to the crowds who were interested enough to go along with him, You guys need to sit down for a minute. You need to consider the cost of following me with your head and with your heart. And then once you've done that, stand up and follow after me. Well, Jesus shares three sermon points about the cost of following him. That proves that Jesus was a Baptist. And the first thing he says in verse 26 is we must hate our families and ourselves. Now, what you ought to be thinking at this moment, does the Bible really call us to hate our families? I can read other Bible texts that say we should love our families. The Apostle Paul said, didn't he? No one hates his own body, but feeds it and cares for it. In other words, there should be some self-love going on. Is Jesus in this moment contradicting the Word of God? Well, absolutely he is not. You see, at one level, and this is only at one level, hear me that, double underlined, Jesus says what he says for shock value. Jesus is saying what he's saying here with the multitude around him, and he's using hyperbole to get us to stop and think about the big call that he's making on our lives. In saying what he's saying, he's saying, look, our allegiance, our love for him must be so great that by comparison, our love for our families and even our own lives looks a bit like hatred at one level. Now, for most of us, Jesus' illustration has always remained in the land of um, exaggeration because most of us don't experience any conflict between loving Christ and our family members at the same time. Most of us. But I know it's true to say that for a few of us, we do find ourselves in a bit of a tug of war. At the one end of the rope, there are family members who are putting pressure on us to back off from our faith or even abandon our love for Christ. And at the other end, you're pulling, seeking to live for Jesus. And in these difficult situations, Jesus' point is not hyperbole. In fact, it's far from it. I'm so aware that for some of us, choosing Jesus under such circumstances has not been the easy choice. But you need to hear this morning, it is the right choice choice. The New Living Translation puts these verses in this way. It says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, by comparison, hate everyone else, your mother, father, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Living where we live, we rarely have to confront this issue ourselves, do we? But if ever it comes down to the choice of obeying someone else or Christ, Jesus' challenge is to choose Christ no matter what the cost might be. And don't we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters at the moment in Ukraine, in Russia, who are willing to stand up for Jesus? Don't we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are living in persecuted situations and are persecuted people because of Jesus? Jesus' call to them, the same as it is to us, is to obey Christ no matter what the cost 
Following Jesus should be more important to us than any other relationship we have with another person on this earth. That seems to me to be the application of verse 26. So that's Jesus' first sermon point about the cost of following. And then the second, he says, verse 27, we must carry our own cross. We must carry our own cross. Well, what did he mean by that? Jesus knew only too well, didn't he? And from later personal experience afterwards, he said these things, that the cross wasn't merely an implement of irritation or inconvenience in a person's life. But the cross actually was an implement of a slow and a very torturous death that only ever had one end outcome. In Jesus' day, a cross wasn't just a symbol of suffering. It was that, but it was mainly a symbol of death. And in saying what he's saying here, Jesus is telling those following that they needed to put to death daily their plans and their desires and that they needed to turn their lives over wholesale to him every single day of their lives. They need to carry their cross. They need to put to death their own agendas and pursue instead the agenda of Jesus. And then thirdly, Jesus throws out this incredible challenge in verse 33 that we need to give up our possessions. After telling these two parables about considering the cost of making a commitment, Jesus there says, none of you can be my disciple if you will not give up your own possessions. Now, does Jesus literally mean here that we've got to get rid of everything that we own and that we've somehow got to take a, a vow of poverty in order to be a Christian? Well, I don't think he means that at one level. You see, Jesus is getting at the fact that there are two possible lords that we can serve in life. He's saying you can either serve God or you can serve money. Those two things are mutually exclusive. Now, in my best moments of life, I know that's to be true. But in my worst moments of life, I somehow try and combine those two things. I think to myself, do you know what? I'll let God take the lead and I'll serve God mostly, but I'd also like to serve money at the same time. That makes life quite comfortable. But Jesus is saying when push comes to shove, that simply won't work. He says it again in Luke chapter 16, a couple of chapters on. You cannot serve God and money at the same time. Now, for most of us here, Jesus is not advocating that we should go off and become a nun or a monk. You shouldn't make a habit of that. See what I did there? Thanks, Simon. But Jesus is saying, look, we cannot live life where we just add a little bit of Jesus to an already materialistic lifestyle as a way of kind of rounding out our spiritual needs. Jesus is saying, I'm not just Lord of the tenth, but I'm Lord of all. I'm Lord of everything. And therefore, would you hold on to your possessions lightly? And if I encourage you to let go of them, would you open up your hand? Isn't it encouraging to see how Esther has done that as she's gone off to pursue this call in Uganda? God isn't calling all of us to go to Uganda. That would be ghastly. But I think he is saying to us, would you hold on lightly to the things that you treasure? Would you make sure that you treasure me above any possession that you might have? And then finally, Jesus throws out this great challenge that if we're a disciple of Jesus, then there's a call on our lives to stay salty to be a people who add flavor into the world. And Jesus says it in quite uncompromising terms here, doesn't he? He's saying salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how could it ever be made salty again? It's neither fit for the soil, nor is it fit for the manure heap. It's thrown out. 
Jesus makes an invitation for those who will be disciples, to be those who make a difference in the world, to be salt and to be light. And here he uses the illustration of salt. And he says, do whatever it takes to stay salty in your journey and your relationship with Jesus. Don't pursue anything or do anything that will cause that saltiness and that flavor to dissipate. Because if that happens, then you're not much use for anything. Stay salty. Jesus' words this morning are quite tough, aren't they? They're quite sobering. But we need to remind ourselves this morning too that his grace is abundant. His grace is abundant. We are going to fall short in this journey of faith. But his grace is abundant. And I sense this morning that the heart cry of Jesus is to say to us, look, would you keep on taking a few more steps forward in your walk of discipleship with me? Whatever it takes... Would you live for me as a disciple? Which leads me to just a few questions before I finish. And the first question is this, is is there possibly in your life or my life any relationship that comes ahead of your relationship with Jesus? Is it possible in your life, in my life, that Your plans and your thoughts are more important than the plans that Jesus has for your life and your thoughts. Can we really say this morning that Jesus is Lord of our finances and of our possessions? Salvation is absolutely free and we praise God for that. But once you receive it, there is a cost. And the cost is the cost of a journey of discipleship. The call is to stand up and say, yes, I'll be counted for you, Jesus, and to keep standing. Before we stand, we're called to consider the cost. And then once we've stood, the call is to continue forward to follow Jesus and to stay salty for him. I wonder what God might be saying to you this morning on this theme of discipleship. Whatever he's saying to you today, would you know that his grace is sufficient for you? that his salvation is great and there's no better pursuit in this life than being a disciple of Jesus. And I commend it to you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we've just heard the story of that big crowd, the multitude who... We're gathered around you. And Lord, we recognize they were there with mixed motives. And we confess this morning, Lord, that sometimes we too come with mixed motives. Lord, there have been times in my own life, Lord, where I've wanted all the benefits of the salvation. To know Christ in the here and now, to know an eternal life. but there's been compromise on the journey of discipleship. Lord, have mercy. I receive your mercy that you promise that you will give. Lord, thank you for these two parables. Lord, we don't want to be a people who say we're going to build something and then ridiculed because we weren't able to complete the journey that we began. 
We don't want to be like a king who doesn't properly calculate the cost and creates carnage for all those people who live under his rule, for those people who are at the receiving end of a battle they don't deserve. Lord, we want to be wise. And Lord, if we're going to be wise people, Lord, we can't just be people that respond 24-7 to our emotions. But too, Lord, we need to be a thinking people who engage the head and the heart in this journey of discipleship. Jesus, we invite you now by your Spirit just to move amongst us, to speak directly and personally to each one of us, to perhaps be challenged this morning about where our discipleship is not quite as good as it could be. Lord, we want to be salty. We want to be a people who shine light into the darkness. And Lord, we know we do that most effectively when we're followers, fully sold out followers of Jesus, wholeheartedly committed. Lord, we choose to stand for you today. To confidently say that we've trusted in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you that you will continue the good work that you've begun until one day it's completed. We thank you. Thank you for the promise of completion. Lord, until then, we offer to you our lives and say, Lord, do with them what you will in your name. Amen.